Hello and welcome to the World Football Index Group A World Cup Preview Podcast. I'm joined by four experts on the four countries placed in this group. I have three of them with me right now, so let's introduce them. And I'm also going to ask them to tell us their favourite World Cup in their lifetime so far. I'll start off with the top seed for this group, Russia. So, Mr. Andrew Flint, welcome back to World Football Index podcast. Um, You've been a regular over the years on this network, so great to speak to you again. How's things shaping up there in Russia? And also tell us what's your favourite World Cup to date. Yeah, that is good to be back. Thanks for thanks for having me on, Adam. Um, yeah, Russia is well. First and foremost, it's I know starting on a negative note, but it's not really a football nation. Um, but the World Cup fever is built gradually to the point where now it's a lot of expectation that I didn't see a few months ago is starting to starting to show. Um, bottom line is the fans are realistic; they're not expecting much, but there have been some unhelpful expectations from the Russian Football Union saying they're setting a target of the semi-finals, which is a faintly ludicrous target. Um, but anyhow, the point is that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of seasons, a lot of campaigns have been disappointing in recent years for Russia. So there's, there's a mixture between excitement because the World Cup's here, um, but also realism that the Russian squad is not good enough to get desperately far in the tournament. Um, but anyhow, the, the final 23 has just been announced this afternoon. And in, in my view, and I'll go into more detail later on this, but there are a few disappointing inclusions. Um, uh, Stanislav Chichesov was, in my view, slightly too conservative with his squad choice. But anyhow, it is what it is. Um, the World Cup's coming and... A lot of people are getting more excited than I thought they would do. So that's a positive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, Adam, you're, you're, the, you're Mr. World Cup, right? Um, you know the tournaments very well. Um, my favourite tournament you ask about, for me, France 98. Um, it's how, really how the old, first one. How old were you at the time? France 98, I was just at the end of primary school. I was 13. Um, that's when... You know all the wall charts and the, the Panini sticker albums. That's when I really got into that's you know the the sort of social side of following it. Um, yeah, I, I remember at school we had the poster up and I could reel off every name of every player in every squad. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't remember the stuff I needed for my exams, but you know that's secondary to the World Cup, of course. So, um, but yeah, France '98 was mine. Um, Michael Owen's goal against Argentina. Um, Beckham's goal against his free kick against Colombia, I think it was. Um, yeah, that was a great tournament now for me. Okay, and also joining me after a fair few months away from World Football Index Stable is our resident Uruguayan, Miss Jessie Loge. How's things going in New York and what's your favourite World Cup, Jessie? Um, well, things are a lot better now that I get to hear your voice again, Adam Brandon. I've missed you. Um, things are a little chilly here in New York. Chilly. There we go. That was a totally unintentional pun. Um, a little cold in New York. And Adam, I think you might be unsurprised to hear that my favorite World Cup in, in my life is, is, is 2010. Um, just for, for purely patriotic purposes. Yeah, fair enough. That's probably my least favorite. Um, I know, nothing, I'm so nothing sorry. Nothing to do with Uruguay, nothing to do with them at all. Uh, <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed their run to the semi-final at that time. But yeah, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't the most exciting of World Cups, that's for sure. Um, also here today is uh, 
Ahmad. Is that how you pronounce it? So it's Ahmad Yusuf. Ahmad. Ahmad Yusuf, yeah. who will be our Egypt expert for this pod. Um, has your heartbeat returned to normal since the first half of the Champions League final over a week ago? And also tell us your favourite World Cup and a bit about yourself. Cool. So, yeah, um, I mean, it's kind of started, things have started to calm down. Reality's got back to, um, to things, see what's uh, happening and seeing how Salah's kind of improving from, from last week. Um, uh, it's a bit of optimism. We'll go into a bit more about it later, but things are kind of looking a bit better for Egypt um, with him. Uh, back in the, uh, you know, coming back. Um, the overall, um, Egypt's kind of very, the cold nation's kind of very football mad. So everyone's really looking forward to this World Cup. The first time we're uh, playing in 28 years now. So there's um, a, quite a lot of you know, optimism, a lot of Egyptian fans flying out, all, you know, all the tickets um, to Egypt games sold out. So that's something to look forward to. A bit about myself, I, um, I kind of write, well, I'm an editor for kingfoot.com, which is an Egyptian sports website. Um, I, my personal Twitter is uh, at Egyptian players, which is well how I initially started getting into writing and speaking about football, because uh, I kind of followed all the Egyptian players who played outside of Egypt. So back in the day, you had, you know, Mido, Ghali, um, Amir Zaki, players like that, and uh, kind of yeah, followed, followed them. Cool, cool. Uh, my 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 brother actually lives uh, lives in Egypt, and uh, and during that Champions League final, I uh, I sent him a message um, when as soon as uh, Salah went down, and I said, "What's the panic like there on the streets of Cairo?" Shocking. It was a bit of a shock, really, because we were all wanting to see what he does, and um, it kind of put it kind of killed the night, really, because it was a, an occasion where he could have performed it in front of the whole world and. That kind of ruined it for everyone, but um, yeah, I think we're all quite hopeful for him to to, to get back and, and be playing. Yeah, I think my um, fingers crossed. About my favourite World Cup for me, it will be the 2002 World Cup, um, simply because it was my, it's my first ever memory of just watching football. Uh, I can't really remember much about it, but all I, all I know is you know, I was watching like, JJ Kocha and uh, Suka of Turkey and the famous um, when it, with the red card of Turkey against Brazil and the fastest goal. That, those are kind of my first ever memories of football. That's why I think the 2002 World Cup and even the ball itself is a, an iconic football. Cool, cool. Not a bad choice at all. Let's get started with this pod properly and take a look at the hosts. Andrew, you've already said a little bit about them in the introduction there, but I think it's fair to say that if Russia weren't hosting the 2018 edition, they almost certainly wouldn't have qualified. Um, and it's only South Africa in 2010 that haven't got out the group stage as World Cup as hosts. Are you concerned Russia might be the second? Oh, I don't like hearing the words because my, my heart is telling me, no, they're definitely going to get through. I mean, they should, I feel, they should be able to get out of the group. Um, but uh, it's, it's a tough one, really. I mean, the expectation... Of getting out of the group for me, that would be a success. I, if they got out of the group, I'd be happy of that. Um, the, the next round, if they did get through, they'd be almost certain to play Spain or Portugal, and I, I certainly wouldn't expect them to beat either of those. So um, that's as far as the tournament's going, as far as I can see. Um, the, the thing is, Adam, Russia have been very confusing the last two years. They've really completely changed. The outlook of the whole squad, um, Stanislav Chichesov came in after the disastrous Euro 2016. He gutted the squad of most of the experienced players who, in my view, were part of the problem. 
they, there wasn't so much urgency in the squad. A lot of young players are coming through, um, especially midfield. Look out for Alexander Golovin in particular. Um, but you've got the Miranchuk twins. You've got Fyodor Smolov's had a renaissance um, and he'll lead the line. There are some some signs for optimism. But for the World Cup itself, I mean, you can't count your chickens, but Saudi Arabia as an opening game has got to be about the most comfortable opening game any host would have had, really. Um, and then it comes down to the Egypt game for me. That's going to be the key key fixture. Um, Salah's fitness will be a major, major part of that, in my view. But I, I think Russia will have enough to get out of the group, but it's certainly not a given. Yeah, I'll, I'll also be joined by our Saudi Arabia expert later on to discuss what hope there is for the 2001 shot in this competition. So... Andrew, what do you see as Russia's strengths and weaknesses? Well, the, the midfield is certainly the, the strongest area um, of the squad. In, in the middle, basically, they're likely to play, well, I say likely to play, for the last 20 months or so, they've been playing three at the back, which suits Russia because they don't have pace in the centre of defence, but they do have quality uh, in, in the centre midfield. Alan Tagoyev, uh, Alexander Golovin, um, Dalia Kuzayev most likely will make the three. But what we have seen in the last couple of friendlies is Chichesov has decided to change back to a back four. So we don't know exactly what lineup he's going to go with. But the point is, he has, he has real quality in the middle. Um, the defence is the major concern. Um, there have been a lot of cruciate ligament injuries that have robbed Russia of Georgi Jikia, who is really the most promising central defender that Russia have uh, at Spartak Moscow. He's out. Um, Alexander Kokorin at Zenit St. Petersburg up front. He's out. Um, so in defence, uh, Ruslan Kambolov, also, he, he was a late withdrawal. So the centre-back uh, partnership is likely to be Sergei Ignashevich, who is he'll be 39 by the end of the tournament. Um, Vladimir Granat looked all over the shop uh, against Austria um, so the centre of defence is a real real worry so I shouldn't be giving away you know, trade secrets here but anybody wanting to, to get at Russia just simply put pace up front and you won't have too many problems scoring um, Ahmed and I are uh, frantically tweeting to our respective nations giving away those secrets just so you know <laughs> well, I, I, Jesse, just please don't say anything to the Uruguayan squad. If you can, <laughs> if you do me that favour, that would be much right. appreciated. I'll hold off. Nah, I mean, the, the, the problem is, Jesse, though, that it won't be too difficult for, for teams to figure out. They, they, will, they will soon see the problems we have. Yuri Zhirkov, I mentioned, he made the squad, um, which is a, oh God, I, my heart just sank when I saw that. He is about a quarter of the player he was before he arrived at Chelsea and uh, I mean, he's he offers nothing going forward. So, strengths, midfield, weaknesses, central defence. Maybe he can take a special trip to a Russian lab before the World Cup begins to see. And what are you suggesting there? What are you suggesting? <laughs> Actually, you know, you mentioned that. You know, you know the the lab in question in Sochi, the one that was um, with the hole in the wall where they they fed through the samples. Yeah, yeah. That is now. That's now a restaurant, and you can order a Meldonium cocktail from that place. Um, oh, apparently, so well, at least their senses of humour are intact. Indeed. So again, Jesse, sorry. Uh, at least their senses of humour are intact. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, 
I, I'm not quite sure how to take it, but it's uh, it's one way of dealing with it, I suppose. But um, <laughs> I actually did. I went into that restaurant when I was in Sochi last summer uh, without realizing what it used to be. I, I didn't have the meldonium itself, so um, yeah. Well, let, let, let's gloss over that side of things. <laughs> the the running joke though, the running joke over here is when, and it shouldn't be a joking matter, I know, but the running joke is when people talk about doping is well. There really is no point because even with doping, Russia would still be terrible. But anyhow, yeah, it seems that way so far. Anyway, I think the big disappointment for me regarding Russia is that they've had many years to prepare for this World Cup. They knew they would be hosting it, so they had so much time to kind of get a system together, a, a, a squad together that. And, and have a real sort of I- ideal way of playing. And it just doesn't seem like they've got themselves organised in that sense at all, does it? Well, no, you, I, would have, I would have said, if the last two weeks hadn't gone, the, the pre-World Cup training camp, if it hadn't gone how it has, where Chichasov started mucking around the formation again and then made, in my opinion, very conservative squad choices, I would have said... Chichester himself in the last two years has done a good job. He's worked out that four at the back is not favourable for Russia because there's too much dependency on old, ageing players. Um, three at the back is what most teams in Russia play anyway. But even then, you're absolutely right, Adam. We've known about this tournament for seven and a half years. And it doesn't take a genius to work out that when you've when the pressure's off to qualify for the World Cup as hosts, you've got time to... to to put a system in place. The nearest system they put in place was foreigner restrictions, which um, in my view is one of the most idiotic measures to try and improve the standard of Russian players. Because the effect it's had is Russians have not traditionally gone abroad, but this measure has made Russian players more valuable in the Russian league because teams need to fill their quota of Russian players. So the youngsters are not going abroad to test themselves, to expand their footballing education, and their motivation has basically dropped. So and, and, and they're not getting exposed to foreign styles at all, are they? Yeah, exactly that, exactly that Adam. Um, I mean, uh, Roman Neustadter is, is, a, is a guy who's grown up in Germany. He is, he is Russian uh, citizen, he's played six times. He's one of the few in the preliminary squad who plays abroad. Um, and he was cut. The only two who play abroad are actually Denis Cheryshev, who's grown up in in Spain. His dad is a coach at, I think it's via, honestly, uh, it's one of the on the on the Costa Brava. Um, Cheryshev himself has played for Villarreal this season quite a bit, um, and he's meant to be very talented, but he's barely featured. He's 27. And he's played 11 times for Russia, uh, and the other is Vladimir Gavilov, who's third choice keeper at Club Brugge in Belgium. Um, so that kind of says it all. No exposure to uh, to other stars of football, and it is a worry. OK, I'm going to move on to Egypt for a bit. And as cliched as it, as it is um, for you right now, Hamad, um, we're going to have to start by discussing uh, Mo Salah's injury. Um, it looks like he'll be out of the first game against Uruguay. That's pretty much confirmed, it seems. I imagine that that will have a detrimental effect on the team, given his importance. But Egypt's defensive record is not to be sniffed at either. And, and grinding out a draw or two and a win against Saudi Arabia appears to me to be Egypt's most likely route out of the group stage. 
would you agree with that assessment? And and also maybe you can start by telling us what you think some of the strengths and weaknesses of this Egypt side are. Yes. Yeah, so Hamad um, Salah has uh, he's come out a couple of days after the the injury and said that uh, he would it would be about three to four three weeks. It was in the end is what they said, which takes us up to you know. The, the last game on the 25th of June against Saudi Arabia, that he should start that game really. Um, quite a high chance that he would. The Russia game in, in the middle, um, it, yeah, he, he could feature in somewhat, but against Uruguay, it's quite unlikely that he'll, he'll, he definitely wouldn't start, but it's quite unlikely that he'd, he'd feature for more, you know, more than maybe he'll come on for five, ten minutes. Um, but that has a huge effect on the team. Hector Cooper's his, his, his Egypt team has been the exact same for the last three and a half years. He hasn't changed many players. He's, he's, keeps the same style of sitting back, defending, putting you know, 10 players behind the ball. Um, and Salah was the only one who was kind of free to roam, to roam up up at up, the up, up top. Um, so it's interesting to see what Cooper will do without, without Salah. Um, and yes, and on Friday was the first time against Colombia where in, in a nil-nil draw, um, which he had to, you know, he, he substituted Salah for Ramadan Sofi of Stoke, who hasn't really played much this season when he has been very poor. Um, and again, he didn't have the best game against Colombia, neither did many of the Egypt team. Start by saying the Egypt team is very, very defensive. I mean, you, you mentioned it's a, it's a good defensive record. It is quite good. So Egypt now have kept 19 clean sheets from three ga- uh, 35 games, so quite a lot. Conceded only 17 in the 33 games as well. Hector Cooper will, will happily sit back and take a, a draw, as you mentioned. That's the best hope for Egypt to see if we get, get, get a draw against Uruguay and Russia. And then maybe win against Saudi Arabia. That's our the only the only hope. Um, the defence is formed of Ahmed Hegazi and Ali Gubra, who were both you know West Brom last season. They both got relegated, but uh, um, Ali Gubra didn't even feature in, um, once in, in the last six months for them. Um, and Ahmed Hegazi was one of the best players in, for West Brom, so you know it, it's good to have him there. And our goalkeeper is he's the 45 year old goalkeeper. So a really interesting story about his career. Um, he's always dreamed of playing the World Cup. He's won four African Nations. He's um, he was the king of Egypt before Salah, so for him, he, he's kind of one of the, our, our captain, um, and everyone's really happy to see him go because he is a you know a talisman in the team. Um, but again, he's 45 years old. That kind of shows the lack of uh, availability of players in the team. If you've got a 45 year old player starting at the World Cup, and he will be the oldest player ever to play in a World Cup, and you've got our, our midfield too. We play a four-four-two-three-one. Uh, so um, the, the the two midfielders are both very de- you know defensive. They're both CDMs. So you've got Tarek Hamid who plays for Zamalek in Egypt, and alongside him you've got Mohamed El Neni who's um, plays for Arsenal. And he, I wasn't the biggest fan of El Neni, um, and at the start of you know, 2018 he really did pick up and improve and started playing a lot better. He previously I felt that he all he did was just be the 11th man in the team, um, but now he gets the ball and he he. he tries to, to do something with it and it's a shame that he got injured towards the end of the season because Egypt kind of heavily relied on him and in the African Cup of uh, Nations he was the only one who kind of was helping out with goals and assists to helping out Salah who you know, is a very one-man team so you need someone to try and help him um, so I think it'll be really important how well Elmeni plays he didn't play on Friday against um, Colombia because uh, Sam Morsi started instead of him um, which does mean that he's probably not 100% match fit so as much as there's a lot of talk about Mohamed Salah recovering from injury, I think Elneny as well um, kind of need, it's, it's all equally as important for the national team. Um, the biggest issue in Egypt is is up front in attack. So even with 
Mohamed Salah, we struggled to score goals. We struggled to create chances. Um, and, and, and so now we either, Hector Cooper doesn't take many strikers to tournaments. He'll only be taking two, who's um, Ahmad Koka and Marwan Mohsen, who between them have only scored five goals for the national team. Um, slightly different players. Koka plays for um, Sporting Brava, is more of a hold-up striker who will feed the ball onto Salah, as Marwan Mohsen's a bit more creative. Having said that, um, against Colombia on Friday, Marwan Mohsen was, was, the, was, was the one-man striker up front trying to hold the ball, and he kept getting long balls you know, powered at him and he kept losing the ball. Um, the, the, there is no kind of creative style or creative attacking play for Egypt. It's very much um, the defenders will pick up the ball and they'll try long balls down the wing to Trezeguet or, or um, to probably now uh, Sobhi. Trezeguet is one really interesting player to look out for. He plays for Kasim Pasa in the Turkish League. He's had an excellent season. He scored 13 goals. Um, really creative play. He even, you know, one of the last games of the season, he scored a fantastic goal with the outside of his right foot, exactly like Charisma scored um, a memorable goal. So he's one to look out for in the World Cup. Okay, and what are the expectations there in, in, in Egypt? I imagine that getting out the group stage is the first aim, but is, is there any hope beyond that as well? So yeah, Hector Cooper has um, stated that, you know, he said, if I, don't, if I don't set my goal on coming in second place, then, you know, kick me out, fire me. He wants that second place. Um, and that is the kind of general expectation in Egypt. Um, how likely that is, it's, it's still a bit kind of, you know, I think it's more just optimism out of the fact that we haven't qualified for a World Cup in a long time. But when you actually look at the team, I um, don't mean to sound too pessimistic, but I'm not the only one in the sense that, you know, there isn't anything, re- there's no spark there. Um, but the, the realistic goal for us is to, to get out of the group stages. And, and as you said, the only way we can do that is by just sitting back for the fir- get first game against Uruguay, doing the same against Russia, and then trying to get the win against Saudi Arabia, who probably aren't the strongest of, of teams, you know, disrespect. But that's, you know, the expectation is to kind of come in second. And, and it's interesting because I, I, I don't know too much about the Russia side, although I've heard there's a lot of injuries in it. And as um, Andrew's mentioned before, they aren't, you know, the strongest of sides. So that middle game is probably the most important game. Um, I think for, for Egypt and for Russia, it's just a do not lose that game kind of scenario because it could go down to goal difference. And again, if, if Egypt come in second place, we'll probably play Spain. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens with uh, Sergio Ramos playing because I don't think any of the, Egyptian, the other Egyptian players will be holding back against them. Yeah, well, a, a couple of nil-nil draws in this group certainly wouldn't surprise me. Um, I think what I'm really fascinated to see with, with Egypt is in African football, and uh, African Cup of Nations over the over the past few decades, really, that they've been consistently sh- strong. They've, they've proved themselves to be a pretty decent tournament side. It was only in 1990 that they managed to actually qualify for for a World Cup in the modern era, anyway. So, I, do you think that it, that kind of tournament experience could could help them here? Well, I think yeah, you're right. It it, it will help, um, as you mentioned we struggled to qualify for any World Cup. And it wasn't just, you know, we missed, we only really missed out 2010. That was really close. Um, but other than that, we've been miles off. We're not a very kind of consistent team. It, it just gets to the fact when we qualify for tournaments, there's a really strong patriotic team spirit in, in, the, in the country. And even in the last Africa Cup of Nations 2017, we hadn't qualified since uh, 2010. Um, but we, you know, we still managed to reach the final. Um, again, I mean, where we lost to Cameroon. 
um, and we didn't play the best football. We are just the team that kind of will just grind out results. Um, we we only we only had scored one goal before reaching sorry we could only conceded one goal before reaching the final, which says kind of how defensive we are, just sitting back and um, and, and you know absorbing a lot of, of pressure. Um, but yeah, there's the thing is a lot of the players have only ever really played in one tournament because a lot of them didn't play in the golden generation between 2006 and 2010. The only, the only two players who, uh, three players who um, would start who are in that generation, probably Sam Al-Hadri, the goalkeeper, Ahmed Fathi and El Mahamadi. There aren't really a, a lot of other players who were part of that generation because there's a lot, there's a lot of youthful players that, you know, who kind of started to come out after that generation. Yeah, true, true. But some say that kind of tournament experience is kind of in the player's DNA of each each nation, which kind of brings me on to Uruguay. As a, that's, a, that's a country that... That certainly has uh, plenty of success um, in the past in this competition, which means they come into it always as, as a possible dark horse contender in the modern era. Jesse, you know what? I think Uruguay could well have a very good World Cup um, here. Everybody oh. knows about their superstar quality and attack with Suarez and Cavani. Uh, the vast majority will know that they also have one of the best central defence pairings in world football too. And finally, in the last year or so, they've finally blooded that talented troop of young midfielders into their side as well. So, in fact, one of them, who played a key role in the um, Fede Valverde, has actually not made the final 23 of this squad. It was announced today or yesterday. So, if you put all this together with an experienced head coach who knows the squad inside out and, and the competition too, you know, I think this is his fourth World Cup. What can possibly go wrong? For the punter's choice as dark <laughs> So do you want do you want the list of what could go wrong? Because <laughs> you I, go for it. As many as you like, Jesse, as many as you like, because I need some reassurance. Oh, well, here you go, guys. Um, the list of things that could go wrong. First of all, injuries, always. And I know all of us are concerned about that all the time, but um Uruguay particularly have a history of uh knee I was going to say that in Spanish of of, of knee and uh, uh, ligament injuries right before tournaments and the other thing the dental elephant in the room is we need to keep our heads and I think we saw in in 2014 what can happen when Suarez feels the weight of Uruguay on his shoulders which he does um, 2010 he was not the leader that he is today and no he's not the captain but he is like adam said um he's this he's front and center and and he feels that you know um so if he feels like he's not doing his best um he gets emotional and that's not good for anyone so that can absolutely go wrong and that is why 90 minutes of not breathing um you're gonna hear from me and this is a really interesting squad i think for me it is most reminiscent of 2010 in its balance of veterans and youth. I'm really excited at the way that um, Tabarez incorporated a lot of youngsters onto this team. However, there are some glaring standouts. I think that picking Pereira was an interesting choice. Um, what we get from Tabarez is, is, is loyalty, and I love that. I love that about him. But we're front-loaded and um, so, you know, he had to make some cuts and cutting Valverde, who is 
just um, phenomenal. And really, I think not only could have been a benefit to this team, but he himself also could have used this to grow. Um, I worry about not only not having him on the bench, but also him losing out on on this tournament, you know, where that is going to lead him and his career. Um, he didn't pick Nico Loledo, who did really well for us in qualifying. And I think um, having somebody else up front as a striking, another striking partner for Suarez also takes some of the pressure off of Cavani, um, who I don't know if anybody else notices this, but, you know, sometimes makes weird, bizarro misses. Cavani makes really impressive goals, but somehow misses really easy shots that my grandmother could make. And that's frustrating. So, you know, would have been nice to have somebody else up in there who could have maybe provided some of that. Um, but we we do have um, a, this sort of resurgence of players who had not been playing really well, who suddenly play really well in league team. Coates, I was ready to write off and send him a letter on behalf of all of Uruguay begging him never to play football again. And suddenly he had this phenomenal year and I'm excited to have him back. What are the expectations amongst Uruguayans for this uh, tournament? Because it does seem that a lot of people are kind of saying, like I said earlier, that they're dark horses for the tournament. They're in Montevideo and beyond. Is there is there a feeling of optimism or is that kind of Uruguayan fear of uh, of what can go wrong still the overriding emotion? Always, absolutely, especially after 2014. Um, I think, right, you know, riding out of 2010, there was a little bit more hope. 2014, and we don't do well on hope. I, you know, I'll, I'll sort of presage that that you know, hope is not a comfortable feeling for Uruguay. So perhaps we're more comfortable with with an with feeling like an underdog. Um, but I do think there is um, the sense that we're going to see the birth of a new team that for a couple of, perhaps a year, but but a good couple of months, there were enough people saying that perhaps Tabares was not the right person anymore for the job, that perhaps some players should have been retired. Um, and now there is a sense that this can be a sort of renewal, um, a, a way for um, the players to coalesce again, um, uh, you know, the, the, the formation again of this, like Garracharua to come back together on the pitch and really find our, our, our sense of style again. Um, and I, I think, you know, Ahmed, I think you brought, or no, Andrew, um, one of you brought up, you know, when, when players don't have a lot of experience playing out of the country, then that's a detriment. But I also think that there is something to be said for for honing or developing that national style. And we also have a really, I'll use interesting again, because I'm at a lack for adjectives right now, but an interesting mix of, for the first time in a while, of players who are playing in South America, um, you know, Naita Nandes, who just left Peñarol for Boca, um, along with players who are playing in European leagues. And, and I, I'm really curious to see how how that is going to lend itself um, to the national team. I think sometimes, uh, well, and what I've seen from in, in Egypt is that the generation that won all the, the tournaments, they were all based in one or two clubs in Egypt. And Egypt didn't have many players playing abroad then. And I think that creates a bit of team spirit. And 
and people know how everyone plays when kind of a lot of players play in the same kind of league. When players go out and play in all these different leagues, it they have different styles, and it's quite tricky for yeah. To bring it's, it's, together. It's, it's yeah, a, you have to learn each other good, again. It's, it's, a, it's a good point. And if you look at the last few World Cup winners, really, Italy in 2006, Spain in 2010, Germany in 2014, they all, the, the main core of those players came from a club team. So I think it was Juventus in 2006 and Barcelona uh, in 2010 and, um, and Bayern Munich in, in 2014. So you, you had that core and that team spirit already there. What I think Uruguay have done so well over the years is they've put that kind of team spirit in their youth teams. So, you know, they, they give them uh, the, the importance of, of playing under 17, under 20 football is huge in South America anyway, um, compared to a lot of other places around the world but in Uruguay it's, it's especially important because they're such a small country they're never going to be able to keep hold of their players for long so it, it's important to, to to get them together in 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 the youth sides and uh, and build that camaraderie there I think and Absolutely. translate that into senior football yeah I agree I also yeah, want I, that um, as a soundbite just Adam saying one nice thing about Uruguay. If somebody could send that to me, it'll be I my. Say, I say my loads. I say cats. loads of nice things about your country. You just, Adam, you I just... want you to know that Chile is one of my favorite places on the planet. It's only when I talk to you that I don't say nice things about it. I don't know why. <laughs> what does that say about us? Maybe Jesse, you could just tell us some players to look out for on a Uruguay team that the average fan may not know about. Perhaps a certain attacking midfielder. That resides in Brazil and has quite a long name. Oh, sure. Well, I was. Can I? Can I start with maybe another long yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. No, no Here? way. There's a okay. couple. There's a couple of very long names. So many long probably. name players on this. <laughs> I know. Um, so, um, so I was really yesterday. Was it yesterday that I, time has lost all meaning for me at the end of the school year? But I don't remember when the when the finalist came out. If it was yesterday or two days ago, but on that day, I was a bit surprised at the at the inclusion. Not not unpleasantly surprised, but at the inclusion of Jonathan Orretevizcaya, who is now playing in Mexico, but like Adam mentioned, had played on the uh, U-17 team, U-17 team that won the uh, South American Championship and then had played um, in Peñarol, but has been, has like become this, this Mexican um, Liga MX superstar. But the Mexican league, aside from Carlos Sanchez, has sort of been this place where, I don't know if, if Adam, if you feel the same way, <laughs> South American players who go there tend to not get chosen for their national teams anymore. Well, I, I, it's, in, in Chile's case, it's, a, it's, a, it's the fact now that they have to choose from there because so many have gone there. But I, I, oh, do, that's I, true. I, I, do, I do think I, my issue with players who go to... Uh, Liga Liga MX is is that I feel that it's not the standard is is nowhere near as high as Europe. It's not particularly much higher than say Argentina or Brazil. It's probably similar standard, possibly even a little bit lower. Some would argue. Um, so I, the benefit in football terms, in footballing terms, I'm not sure is is great. But obviously, in financial terms, it's, uh, it's, pace. It's well, financial terms definitely, but. <laughs> I think pacing, you know, you play so many matches because they have so many 
um, tournaments that you're basically playing all the time. And for Ureta, um, he, again, midfielders were, were sort of stacked in the midfield. And so for him, um, I think it was just a, a, a point of where is he going to get playing time? And he has really managed to create this this niche for himself where he is playing. He's he's a starting player and he won the league with them. So um, he managed to stand out enough that he got picked. And I was really pleased for him. But um, I think, Adam, you were talking about the Arrakaeta, Georgian. Yes. I don't know why I did yes, that. Like Bond, James yes. Bond. Yes, yes. yes I Great. Was, I did uh, it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> here, we've seen plenty of of him um, in the Copa Libertadores this year. Um, he's been one of the star players for Cruzeiro, who started the, that competition slowly. Listeners to the South American Football Show will know about that. Uh, but they finished very strongly, and, and um, Arascaeta was one of the key players um, in yeah. getting them through the group stage. That's for sure. Yeah. Also, I'm. I mean, so I'm so surprised. This makes me feel really old. <laughs> but when I look at who we've got playing and how long they've been playing. I mean, I'm just so surprised at how young they are. Um, you know, get he's like 12, um, but he's been playing for a really long time. And I, I love um, what I, what another thing that I, that I think that Tavares did was he chose this, this team that like doesn't make any sense in terms of, or perhaps makes the most sense, I guess, when you look at their measurements, you know, like they, they look like my cousin put it. Um, they look like a like the. I'm trying to make it in English. Like the what's the movie? The crowd of misfit toys. Team of misfit toys. I don't I don't remember the the, the name of it in English. But you know you've got Godin who is basically Gumby. You know he's tall and skinny and and he sort of lopes like a baby giraffe. Coates forget about it. Coates can't fit through doorways. And then you have. Um, the I'm sorry, I love them all. I'm, you know, I sound like I don't, but I, I, they're mine, and I love them. But then you have these like super stocky players. You have Pereira, who looks like he's you know 50 years old and and hasn't played in years because he looks like he can't fit in the jersey anymore. But he is going to muscle his way in there. It's just the most interesting looking team that we've put out in a really long time, and. It gives me, it, believe it or not, with the way I'm describing it, it gives me hope because it's just a total lovely mishmash and, and mismatch of players. I think the one area that we're always a little shaky is our defense, regardless of what um, Adam, you know, obviously you mentioned before of Josema and Godin. And, and that is our left side, Martin Cáceres, who has been one of my favorite players since 2006 he's not been fit for a really long time um you know anybody who watches the Italian league can has seen that he just he hasn't gotten a lot of playing time he's been plagued by injuries he got the call up but I'm still not 100% sure whether he's actually going to play I hope he does but I, I just you know you never know with him yeah I, th- I think possibly the the fullback area of the Uruguay team is is, is a possible weakness looking at it from my perspective um, 100%, yeah. Okay, now we're going to shoot across to our Saudi Arabia expert, Shayab Ahmed, uh, who's uh, who's going to tell us what hope there is for the outsiders for this in this competition. So joining me today is Shoyab yes. Ahmed. It's a pleasure to have you on the World Football Index. Welcome. Um, so first of all, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, and also tell me, as, as I asked the other guys on this pod as well earlier, um, your your favorite world cup to date 
Sure. Firstly, thank you uh, on this podcast, Shweb. Uh, well, my name is uh, Shweb Ahmed, and I'm basically someone who follows Middle East football very closely, having having touched base with uh, the region. Um, yeah. um, I was born and raised there, so played on the streets, played on the sands, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, now I'm based in uh, New York City, but uh, you know, roots are still back there. But that's that. Now I run a blog called Fatinians, where I put my opinions on Middle Eastern football. Um, so feel free to check that out. In terms of my favorite moment or my favorite World Cup, I'd say it would be 1994, right, uh, in US. Uh, the reason being is because that's the first time I actually completed a Panini sticker book. Right? <laughs> Good reason. Um, and also one, I the, never got, and yeah. also one of the greatest World Cup goals as well, scored by a Saudi Arabian. <laughs> exactly. You know, it just happened to match up. <laughs> uh, and yeah, of course, as you mentioned, you know, against Belgium, say that we're in like uh, that beautiful run, uh, basically catalyst Saudi Arabia, the map, you know, over in So that was, that was great. Um, I'm I'm based over here in uh, Chile in South America. So for everybody here in Chile, it's it's going to be difficult to watch the opening match of this World Cup for various reasons. But a big reason is the fact that Juan Antonio Pizzi will be there as as head coach of Saudi Arabia. So he he got to go to Russia when Chile didn't, and he he was of course the man who failed to get probably a most talented group of Chileans in history. Um, yeah, he he didn't manage to to get into the World Cup. So. For Saudi Arabia, Pizzi was what their third or fourth manager in this current cycle, and given given that kind of upheaval um, on the on the Saudi Arabian uh, bench, what what kind of expectations are there for Saudi Arabia in this tournament? As as I think they're also the the rank outsiders, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, given the state uh, group that they are in uh right now you have uh you have Russia, the host you have egypt and uruguay uh everyone's talking about uruguay running with the you know running with the top position and so now what's left is russia and egypt with russia it seems like this squad has the chance to take a point if not three uh the reason i say this is um i was pretty skeptical about this squad the depth within the saudi national team right um um, given that, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Juan Antonio Pizzi just got into the team, right? And he's still trying to understand the players. He's still trying to understand the strengths uh, and then trying to, in, in, you know, introduce his tactics to those strengths. Um, I feel like it's been a struggle. It's been a challenge for him to, uh, to get to where he is right now because, you know, as you know, his predecessors are like actually two of uh, two men behind, you know, previous to him, uh, but uh, Marwick. He was the one, the Dutchman actually led Saudi Arabia all the way to qualifiers. Go off because he, uh, he didn't want to stay in Saudi Arabia. He was willing to train the national team. But he didn't want to live in the in the nation, uh, which was one of the criteria for the Saudi Federation. So he was like, then came Edgardo Bauza, right? He was the manager of UAE to take them through the World Cup qualifiers, um, of course, bombed with UAE national team. And then, you know, he moved on to Saudi. Uh, Saudi realized that. It was a mistake, and within a few months, he was let go off too. And then came Juan Antonio Pizzi, right? Um, so it's 
It's challenging. It's really challenging. There are there are some good players within. Um, it's just the how they deal with the pressure of this World Cup situation or the environment that they're going to be is uh, something that to look forward to. For sure, for sure. And, and what are some of the names that people who don't have much knowledge of Saudi Arabian football, like myself, could keep an eye on in this World Cup? So the three that would be the ones that actually went to Spain. Um, I don't know if you uh, know the background about uh, you know how nine Saudi yeah. national teams, but Saudi national. Yeah, so there were nine of them, uh, you know, sent to Spain, and out of those nine, three were uh, well, three are strong players for their, you know, for their teams in the domestic league, right? One of them is uh, Yahya Al Shahri, who actually scored against uh, um, uh, against Italy uh, a few days ago uh, in the friendly. Um, he plays for Al Nasser. He was he moved to Leganes. Then you have Fahad Al Mualad, uh, who plays for Ittihad back home, but he moved to Levante and saw a few, you know, f- few playing minutes uh, in the last few games with uh, Levante. And then you have uh, Salim Al Dosri, right? He um, he moved to Villarreal, and uh, of course, if you know, in his last game against Real Madrid, he came in with uh, he played a significant uh, 30, 40 minutes, and uh, turned out pretty good. So these are the three players that look very sharp, right? Reason is because when this deal was signed with La Liga, everyone was skeptical, you know, because these three players who are core to the national team, they would be playing regularly with their domestic teams in Saudi Arabia. Now that they're going to Spain, they would barely get a chance or barely get a chance to get onto the pitch, which was the scenario. But based on the last friendly against Italy, it seems like that Spanish transition actually helped the players because, you know, now they're, you, you know, like when you train with these professionals, yeah. you basically so saw, uplift your... Yeah, exactly. I mean, anything like an 8-1 loss to Germany would be embarrassing. Exactly. And like, you that would be in the minds of many people uh, when Saudi Arabia is mentioned. But yeah, I, I think that's, this squad is yeah. a lot better than that one, that's for sure. Oh yeah. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's still uh, uh, the issues with uh, you know, on the defensive end, but uh, I feel like um, you know they're still overall they're still strong, right? Um, if you tell me like if I had to pick one player, you know, like every other national team has that one player that could change the game. Um, that player does not exist because it's an overall effort from the entire squad, right? For example, if Yahya Al Shahri does not show up, uh, that'll be the other team. His the rest of the ten players need to show up to make sure that they get somewhere. Or you know, like get a point or two, or point or three, or something. So okay, that's that's fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for joining us today on on the World Football Index Group A preview podcast. And uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, thank you, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, if you want to follow me, please uh, reach out on Fotinians, F O O T Y N I O N S. I'm on Twitter. My site is up there, but you know, most of it is on Twitter. I have like a lot of conversation out there, so feel free to reach out. Yeah, give that a follow, and uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Awesome, thank you very much, Adam. Okay, so that rounds us up nicely. It's been a fascinating chat about Group A, and and it's going to be the group which kicks off this tournament. Andrew, you must be really excited for this tournament to begin. 
where can people follow you during the competition? Uh, so I'm sure you'll have lots of interesting photos and, and comments during the competition for, for us to look at. Where, where can people find you on Twitter? Well, yeah, actually, I, I will be doing a slightly mad thing for this World Cup. I cannot wait, but I will be driving to every host city from Siberia to the Black Sea to Kaliningrad and then back again. Um, and I'm doing doing quite a lot of video work for a new group of websites called Ronnie Dog Media. Um, on Twitter, it's at Ronnie Dog Football, spelt the Spanish way, F-U-T-B-O-L, on the end. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, and my personal Twitter, at Andrew M-I-J Flint. Okay, that's great. That sounds sounds really fascinating. Um, at where can people find you? So yeah, um, I'm on Twitter. It's at Egyptian Players is my Twitter handle, and uh, I will be out in Russia following Egypt, um, who uh, who will be travelling the, the longest distance out of any country um, in the group stages. So yeah, from Yekaterinburg, St Petersburg, and then uh, back to Vol- Volgograd. Oh wow! So you got tickets for all their group games? Yeah, so going to going to all three of the, uh, the games, and then also seeing Belgium against Tunisia. So as I was in Moscow at the time. Oh, wow. That's going to be a great experience. Um, Take it from me. I was there in 2014. And Jesse, I don't think you're heading over to Russia, are you? No, I was going to say, I'm going to be here (laughs) super jealous of both of them. I'm going to be following both of them on Twitter is what I'm going to be doing, looking at the adventures. But but where can people find you to, to, to hear updates live from your New York apartment? Right, they can they can follow me at Brooklyn, where nothing is happening. Um, at Jesse Loesch. Okay, um, yeah, give give all the give all those Twitter handles a follow. You can follow me at Adam Brandon eighty four. I'll try not to sound too bitter during the World Cup. That chili didn't make it, <laughs> um, but um, no promises there. And yeah, so it's just left for me to say a big thank you to uh, Jesse, Ahmed and Andrew for joining me today and a huge thank you to our listeners and goodbye.